Switch to Sprint and save 50% off family lines with unlimited military plan. Plus, enter to win Sprint's $50,000 sweepstakes. With all that money, you could save for your family's future or pay off debt. Picture the possibilities. For rules and how to enter, visit Sprint.com slash 50K. 50% off lines 2 through 6, unlimited basic rates covered and offer not available ever. Excludes taxes, fees, and roaming subject to credit and $30 activation fee. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. No purchase necessary in 63019, 18 and older. Void where prohibited. Paid advertisement. No federal endorsement implied. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. It is the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Michael Weir. It is a new episode, and we have a special, very special guest with us today, who is Jamar Tisby. Brother man, how are you doing? I am honored and humbled to be on this show with such distinguished gentlemen as you. I respect y'all so much, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Most of you should know. I know a lot of uh, the folks that listen to us also listen to Pass the Mic. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the Dust Bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh no, it's the Dust Bunny's only natural predator. Run along, Dust Bunnies, run along. And we know that uh, uh, Jamar is, is on past the mic. He's, one of the, he's the founder of the Reformed African American Network, a renowned speaker and thinker in Christian circles. And uh, we really just want to have a conversation with him. You know, he um, obviously has a lot of people that he influences that listen to him. He, we know that he's very thoughtful. And recently, John Ward with uh, Yahoo News wrote a very good article uh, about Jamar entitled uh, In the Trump Era, Tired Are the peacemakers. Uh, and as I was reading that, you know, I, there were a lot of connections and I've heard a lot from my folks who are reformed brothers and sisters, uh, really, ref, you know, really reflecting your sentiment. Can you talk a little bit about just the experience with John and, and that article and maybe even some of the reaction? Yeah. Shout out to John Ward, who actually came all the way down to the Mississippi Delta where I live to spend a day and a half with me and, and just kind of converse and, and get a better sense of things. But what, what, what that article is is basically about is kind of the fatigue that many Christians in predominantly white circles uh, are feeling right now. And uh, what that election highlighted, you know, there was 81 percent of white evangelicals who voted pulled the lever for Trump. And so that was, I would say, um, a re-realization of mm -hmm the 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 gap and the divide that exists uh culturally and socially and in some senses ecclesiastically but between black and white christians and so you know i've spent a lot of time among white evangelicals they're my brothers and sisters in christ and uh i i love them in in that sense but there it's hard i mean it's just hard uh especially in in this day and age if you feel like the people who you're pouring into and who are supposed to be your spiritual family really don't understand you. And, and you get the sense that a lot of that misunderstanding is due to an unwillingness to, to listen. And so the article just kind of detailed that um, this journey we've been on, I think, even as a nation for for almost a year now. Yeah. And I've, I've had less of those conversations probably than you. But in the ones that I've had, I, I think you hit on something is uh, the 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 unwillingness to listen. And to me, that comes down in part to 
uh, a lack of humility almost, right? Um, the, the the inability to kind of listen and say, maybe this person does have a point and I'm missing something. Is Does humility have a part to play in that? It absolutely does. But the the blessing, it's a it's both a burden and a blessing to be a minority. But the blessing is that you get to see up close uh, what's what's happening with people. And so it's it's, you know, the folks who who aren't listening would never characterize themselves as pr- too proud to listen to black mm. people. Right. They would never mm-hmm. think of it that way. I think what what's happening is so there there are so few opportunities well rather i'll say there are so few people who take advantage of the opportunities there are to actually sit under the leadership of a person mm. of color uh be they uh african american latino latina asian whomever and so what happens is you get a group of people uh for whom society is built and structured around and it's working for them and then all of a sudden you have these these marginalized voices coming and saying, hey, it's not working for us. And here's why. Well, the the, the knee jerk reaction is to continue uh, to sort of take the lead and to navigate uh, the conversation the way you want it to go. And so what I'm seeing is that those old habits die hard and it's very difficult for some people uh, to give legitimacy to minority and marginalized voices. Now, that's a blanket statement, right? There are always exceptions. And so we, we've got to somewhat differentiate between the individual and the aggregate, because sure. on the individual level, you know, there there can be a lot of headway and a, and a lot of progress. But on the aggregate level, there's still um, a long, long way to go in terms of turning the ship of white evangelicalism to be more sensitive to the concerns of uh, marginalized community, particularly African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Jamar, I know that in the article, uh, it says that you affirmed uh, that your racial identity, uh, that Christianity, your Christianity supersedes your racial identity. Can you get into that a little bit while still obviously respecting who you are uh, racially? Right. I mean, this is basic theological anthropology. I think we need to go back to those passages in the Bible that said we should be on solid food, but we're still on this spiritual milk. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And then the implications of that are that everyone, uh, if you are a human being, so this transcends, you know, even if you're non-Christian, what have you, you are worthy of basic dignity and respect. And that's reaffirmed again in the Ten Commandments, if you extrapolate the principles of thou shalt not kill, that means you're actually doing what you can to protect and preserve the life and the flourishing of other people around you. And so we have these teachings. We've had these teachings for hundreds and thousands of years. And so uh, this is not new, but 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 what we're we're trying to get our white brothers and sisters to see more clearly is the application of those truths to present day struggles and concerns. And so, you know, just to zoom out a little bit, I think there was um a a an upsurge in African Americans and and minority Christians of all types who who self-identified as reformed. I think there are a lot of causes to that. Um, you know, Christian hip hop where, you know, you might have a a, a soundbite or a quote from a a white reformed preacher or something actually in the song, uh, church planting, uh, access to reformed seminaries and whatnot, and so you had a a a small but but appreciable number of minority Christians saying, "Hey, I'm reformed. Or I subscribe to this." But what's happened lately, almost like the label evangelical, is it comes with so much cultural baggage that mm. it's not helpful. And so that's one of the things we're working through. But on a much, much deeper level, as my co-host Tyler Burns is quick to point out, that the 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 entire framing of Reformed theology, if not in its in its um, written formulations, then certainly in its application has been centered on a a white frame. And so anytime you bring concerns of 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 minorities, which would particularly include issues like uh, racism, mass incarceration, um, the funding inequality and in education, those kinds of things. It seems foreign and even not 
uh, part of the gospel, which is an yeah, so accusation. Yeah. Often. Much is made. That's a, that's, I like, I like what you, where you went, where you took that much is made of in certain circles of uh, supposed theological issues within the black church. Would you go so far to say that white evangelicalism has some serious theology problem? <laughs> man. Yeah, man. Uh, wow. That is, a, I'm glad you brought that up. So look, if we're human, we've got theological issues, right? Because not only are we finite and therefore we can't comprehend the infinite mind of God, but we're also fallen, which means, you know, to go into your formal systematic theological categories, the noetic effects of sin will affect our minds in the way we think. And so even as we study the Bible, we can extrapolate false conclusions from it. And so in that sense, all of us are messed up in our <laughs> theology, right? Which then actually hmm. argues for diversity. because depending on your social cultural context, your time period, your geography, you're going to ask different questions of the text than somebody else in a different situation. And so it actually takes the body with all of our different perspectives coming together to have a more holistic, uh, uh, a broader view of the truth. And so I'm not arguing for relativism at all. What I'm saying hmm. is we see through glass darkly, right? And so we need each other to help us see what we don't see. That's the definition of a blind spot, right? If you're driving in your car, you literally cannot see this space. And because of that, you may switch lanes and swerve into another car. But it takes other folks around you to help warn you of those dangers. And so to your question more directly, yeah, I think... um there have been a lot of white Christians and even a lot of black Christians who move sort of in these reform circles who would kind of look down on the black church because of certain errors. Well, number one, those errors are not unique to the black church. Take the prosperity gospel, for instance. That's not something just found in the black church. That's found everywhere. Um, but then I think it points to a deeper problem where there is even if people wouldn't articulate it consciously, there is a sense that black theology is somehow inferior. And that's the issue that we got to deal with. So I do see that. Right. That's what I was getting. That was, that's what I was getting at, but very good answer. It sounded like uh, uh brother Weir had a question for you. Yeah. I, you know, Jamar, on the church politics podcast, we're, we're trying to break down some of the idea that folks can cordon off, uh, their faith from politics and public questions. That's kind of the whole point of this thing. But, you know, as I read the article, as I'm, uh, uh, as I'm, uh, uh, you know, as, as I hear this conversation, j just want you to talk a little bit more, you know, respond to the, the, the person who would say, um, look, why, why can't the church just be the church? Maybe we're going to vote different ways, but, uh, but, but why is, you know, my position on Trump or even, you know, on a policy issue like uh, taxes or the military or immigration reform um, isn't isn't politics too, um, too convoluted and imperfect to, uh, for, for those to be make or break kind of ecclesial ecclesial issues. In other words, you know, there's this critique of, you know, politics saturating, saturating everything. Uh, can you can you explain a bit like how, how you think about um, what 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 to excuse and what what sort of to um, what what you can understand and, and what you really have to you know draw some lines around? That's a helpful question. Uh, overarching, let's just say this. My stance is your faith should inform your politics, but your politics should not become your faith. Mm, and by, right. By yes. by that I mean one's deeply held beliefs, uh, whether you are an atheist, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, Jew, whatever it might be, one's deeply held beliefs about the way the world should be are going to affect how you vote. They're going to affect your position on issues. I don't think that's a problem, and I think we would be disingenuous uh, to believe that that was not the case. But on the flip side, your faith should not become your politics. So some people are treating, um, you know, voting a certain way as like heresy. Right. And I, I personally believe that, 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 Matt, 
these are matters of conscience, that we do have liberty, and they are so convoluted and so contextual that it would be uh, mistaken, if not sinful, for someone to say, well, you must vote for this candidate, or you must vote for this policy, or you must vote for this platform. Uh, I just think there's there's too much to it, and uh, we all have our own consciences. Now, that being said, you can vote your conscience, but it comes with consequences. Hmm. And so that's what I've been trying to point out when it comes to Trump. Yeah. When 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 we talk about this particular he was candidate now president, uh the rhetoric that came out of his own mouth, along with the vocal support from white nationalists, white supremacists, uh, people who who think they have quote their president in office now. Black people and many other minorities, whether immigrants or Muslims or women, they were raising the red flag and saying, hey, this is dangerous. I mean, we were practically jumping up and down and screaming. Yeah. And yet, you know, the, the, the polling numbers come back and you get that 81 percent number. And so I, as an African-American, felt very unheard. Yeah, I felt misunderstood. Um. And so what I was trying to do is is not say, oh, you should have voted this way or you should have voted that way. But now that this has occurred, Christian, yeah. here's here's how it's affecting uh, human beings, image bearers uh, who are black and brown or, or women or minorities or, or immigrants or Muslim. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I think I think you got on this, uh, you know. It's just like acknowledge reality. So, you know, uh, folks' political decisions, you know, uh, can be what they're going to be. But where I get nervous is when I uh, when I hear Christians start making excuses for things that they know are wrong. <laughs> when, when I start hearing Christians uh, uh, say something today that last week in a different in a different political circumstance, the, the same thing that they were pretty clear about you know, whether it was right or wrong. Um, and, and so I think, I think that's like a, that's like a critical thing. Like it's, it's not, uh, you know, the voting is a sin, but if, if you're for somebody, then sort of the tribal effect of that is for you to uh, be changing everything else you believe and making excuses for things you wouldn't be making excuses right. for, for any, anybody else. Then it, then it gets problematic. Is And isn't that, isn't part of that, Part of the root of that, the idea that and Christians kind of go into the uh, sociopolitical space thinking that with this zero sum idea that victory is the is the is the number one objective. Right. Exactly. Because what, what I see happening is people voting for Trump, people putting themselves in these situations where they have to defend Republicans or Democrats. Regardless of what they do, because they have to rationalize the idea that they really just want to win. Right. Right. That they right. Want to you want to win by any means. And if this guy gets us to a win, then we're going to take him and we're going to rationalize or whatever we have to do because we got to get that win. That's it. And it deserves saying, because I've had these conversations before, um, it deserves saying that like not every white evangelical who voted for Trump was like enthusiastic about it. You know, right. that's right. They, they, they recognized his flaws and they were voting for a Supreme Court justice or, you know, uh, 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 a pro-life stance or what, what have you. And, and and I totally understand that, but I'm still trying to 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 highlight the point that those issues came with a whole bunch of other stuff that he brought. And mm. I think we're seeing that right now. Right. But but you had, you know, the way I think of it is is like black people were canaries in the mine uh, in the in the in the election cycle and the time leading up to the actual vote. We were saying, hey, th these are these are dog whistle tactics. He's playing to a base that that has an ideology that is inimical to inclusiveness and, and to equality and uh, black women, especially 94 percent, I, I believe, voted uh, for the Democratic yeah. candidate. And so, you know, folks saw this coming and I'm just trying to articulate to Trump voters generally and and Christians in particular that, listen, we've got to deal with the consequences. So when the president or someone in his administration does something that is, like you said, Michael, directly uh, contradictory to 
Christian virtues, we got to call that out. Yeah. When he does uh, or supports a policy that seems clearly uh, harmful to to people who are poor and 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 in some senses socially powerless, we've got to highlight that. And so you voted for who you voted for, but let's deal with the ramifications of that. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think you're even being a little kind in that, because <laughs> even without African-Americans and women and Hispanics saying, look at what he's doing, look at what he's doing. By the terms that a lot of white evangelicals <laughs> set for other people, what? broke every one of the every single rule that they had for other people. So even if they didn't hear any other voices, even if somehow those voices didn't get through the ear gate, it should have been obvious Amen. that you know that he was breaking these rules. You make a very good point, yeah. though. Not everybody voted. It was just ecstatic about voting uh, for Trump. Some people just couldn't stomach uh, uh, Clinton, and there were many other reasons. So we don't want to reduce the conversation uh but I, there were plenty uh, plenty uh opportunities for folks to reject what was going on or, or at least speak out on it and not rationalize it or defend it even in some cases yeah. and i'm glad you brought up the article initially because what's happened is uh folks are 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 ceasing to they're just getting tired of explaining and re-explaining and justifying this yeah. to so many people, right? And I'm one of those. And and it's not like we got to be nuanced to this. This is not me turning my back on on white Christians at all. It's me saying I everything I do in terms of my public ministry is in some senses an apologetic for um for people to come together because of the gospel, yeah. right? But 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 there there is a time and and there's no there's no single blanket, you know, highlighted line where you can say this is the time and this is not the time. But there does come a point, And I think everybody has to evaluate for themselves based on their context and their situation where you say this isn't fruitful. Yeah. And it's not just all about being successful or whatever. It's not fruitful. It's not healthy. And and in the meantime, as I'm trying to explain and justify, you know, that race is still an issue, that, that these justice issues are still salient. That's actually time spent away from serving other folks. And for me, uh, that's in particular, I, I have a, I have a mission and a burden for, uh, black people. Um, and so there was a lot of my energy being spent on defending from attacks rather than proactively evangelizing and explaining and teaching. And so I think there are a lot of folks in, in that situation where we're like, you know what? Um, it goes back to that humility conversation, Justin. We are absolutely there for uh, the humble Christian who wants to walk alongside minorities and learn from and with us. Uh, you know, the, the, the Bible says a bruised reed he will not break. And so, you know, that one who comes and says, because they're broken over the sin of this land and of their own sin in terms of prejudice. And they say, hey, I want I repent. And I want to do better. I want to learn more and I want to follow you and I want to be alongside you. Come on, come one, come all. But there are folks who are obstinate. There are folks who are willfully ignorant. And it's just like, OK, do you. But I'm going to do me. Yeah, uh, no, that's real. Yeah, I, I, I do. And I know we got to uh, move on uh, a little bit. We got we got a lot to discuss. But, um, you know, I do want to throw out because Justin and I have been a, a part of uh, a lot of different conversations um, on an array of issues and, and what's I'd love to hear your thoughts on this Jamar which is you know at the, at the time that there's a lot of sort of fracturing within the church and tension and I believe it can be you know healthy tension I I, I think God's tilling the ground of of uh, of uh, the soil of the church to to create something new, um, but but uh, fr from a, a as a political watcher, a, as a as a cultural watcher, I also see that there are a lot of challenges uh, facing the church uh, it, right now uh, that are actually going to require a greater de uh, greater degree of partnership um, uh, across the church than. Um, than than maybe we've needed before, and so mm. Uh, mm. It, it, you know it, you talk about the problem of and I, I you know to put my card on the table I do think it's a problem the problem of of secularization and we're seeing rise of 
uh, 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 those falling away from the church sort of across uh, racial background, especially those who are younger. And then we're also seeing polarization. That means that uh, in some communities um, and in some geographic regions and in some political districts, uh, you have politicians on both the right and the left uh, who think that they can govern by only listening to a certain percentage uh, or, or certain slices of their constituency. And so increasingly what we're seeing is if there aren't, uh, if there aren't uh, uh, members of that politician's base uh, willing to bring to that politician the concerns of those outside of his base, they won't get heard. Uh, they, they won't get heard at all. I, I, a good example of New York, where um, and this was back in, in 2010, 2011, where you had the the mayor there, uh, the previous mayor, um, uh, uh, using a definition of uh, church-state uh, separation as saying that churches could no longer use public schools. Well, uh, well, uh, in New York, real estate is is pretty expensive. So you had you had a lot of. Uh, he thought he was attacking, I think, conservative religious folks. Ended up a lot of a lot of black and Hispanic churches were were uh, were at risk of losing their uh, their worship space. And so you you had this really incredible partnership between. Uh, some of the reformed churches in New York, predominantly white and Hispanic and black churches in New York. So I know that's a long setup to the question, but uh, it, it's all to set up this, which is um, at this time where uh, uh, there's there's a lot of division and tension in the church. What is the hope for uh, partnership in in the short and medium term or do you think we're just at a place now where um there's so much damage done that that that's going to be hard to do Ooh, it is going to be hard to do i i never give up hope uh you never know when and how the lord is going to move but it's going to take some intentional action on the part of christians right we pray and then we act and so we need to lift this up in prayer i think that polarization is perhaps even a bigger issue than uh, secularization, because from, from from that standpoint, what I see is is the Lord winnowing the church, and and this idea of cultural Christianity has become more costly. Mm. So the folks who are who were never really dedicated in the first place just have dropped the label of Christian altogether, or they call themselves spiritual, not religious, those kinds of things. Which actually, there's a legitimate critique within that because. Uh, I think especially now people are looking at the church in America and seeing so much hypocrisy, um, but they still believe perhaps in God or the or the teachings of the Bible, but they eschew some of the structures that have grown up around it. That's a different conversation. Nevertheless, if we're going to look at, you know, the, the polarization issue, yeah, we've got to absolutely pray about this and lift it up. I think we got to do a couple of other things, and it starts with the church. One, we've got to talk about politics in the church. Yeah. And, and 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 not in a partisan way, right? We got to equip, this is a matter of discipleship, we got to equip the saints to think through politics and their role as earthly citizens of this kingdom and this government um, from a biblical standpoint. Now, what I've often seen is that because issues like politics, and you could add race in there, are potentially divisive, a lot of church leaders say, well, we're just not going to talk about it at all. Yeah. I, I think that's the exact wrong thing to do because then people just kind of uh go back in their corners and then uh continue the the polarization continues rather we need to actually facilitate those conversations in the church and uh it's been very fruitful for me i got together with some guys at, at my church from across the political spectrum we have a, a libertarian we have a, a staunch republican we have um a couple of democrats we've got a couple of independents and we get together uh over you know at someone's house and we actually talk politics but under the banner of our christian brotherhood yeah. right and so that allows us to have some of those difficult conversations mm. without fellowship and then from there my goodness i live in the deep south which is solidly red right. in most places and it's simply a reality that uh you know in mississippi for instance the governor's not going to move on the flag the mississippi yeah. flag uh Confederate Canton in the corner. And uh, 
because it's it's it it politically it's no win for him. Yeah, right. So we need to actually press not just the politics of the situation, but the morality. Right? Like this isn't a matter of winning votes. This is a matter of right and wrong. Yeah. And you've got here in Mississippi, a symbol that flies over the entire state that causes pain and harkens back to a place in America where I hope we don't want to go again. Yeah. Uh, and so it's going to take some moral fortitude from our leaders. and It's going to take Christians calling our leaders, both Democrat and Republican and, and everything besides to moral leadership and not simply political leadership. Yeah, that's real. And, and I think there was an and campaign promo in there. In there somewhere. <laughs> Y'all doing it. Um, but, yes. But, but, but let's talk about some other things, too, man, because we want to get some other perspectives. One of the things folks have been talking about this last week is the back and forth. Um, between our president, Trump, and uh, Puerto Rico, uh, specifically a uh, back and forth that he's had with San Juan's mayor. Um, and so we're going to let's talk about that a little bit. But I, I want to give people some of the background uh, in regards to the American United States and Puerto Rico relationship, because I don't think a lot of people know exactly uh, what, what that looks like. So Puerto Rico became a U.S. territory in 1898. Uh, and that happened through the Treaty of Paris, which effectively ended the Spanish-American War. Now, this treaty included not only Puerto Rico, but also uh, Philippines, Guam and Cuba uh, were part of the deal. Uh, this deal was a major move for the United States, uh, and it moved us toward hegemony, which is world leadership. Now, in 1917, uh, President Woodrow Wilson granted Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship. Now, this was still very different than, than the citizenship uh, indiv individuals who live in the states have because they could not vote for president or any voting members of Congress. Uh, but also they didn't they didn't pay taxes. Uh, so uh, Puerto Rico is a United States Commonwealth. And if you really want to dig into what that means, I, I would tell you to do some research on the territory clause in the United States Constitution and also a case called Puerto Rico versus Sanchez, because it really fleshes out what being a commonwealth and a territory of the United States means. I'll give you the short of it, which is Puerto Rico is a U.S., a United States property. Uh, it is not sovereign, uh, but it's not a state either. Uh, the United States Congress basically had to approve Puerto Rico's constitution. And now the big, big debate going on in Puerto Rico um, is whether they should remain a commonwealth, which a lot of their leadership class and political class is supporting, or whether they should pursue statehood. So that's a, a big back and forth. Something else I think you should look up when it comes to the, re the relationship between uh, the United States and Puerto Rico is the American um, colonial bank. Um, and, and you will see a, a very tough and checkered history with that. Uh, there were some predatory lending practices, to say the least, going on where a lot of Puerto Rico's uh, people lost their land to the banks because there were no usury laws where they were charging insane amounts of interest and people were losing their land. And a considerable a considerable a considerable amount of land actually went from Puerto Ricans to this American colonial bank. So that's something to look up. We won't get too much into it. Uh, Brother Weird, do you have the quotes uh, that um, Trump uh, from Trump's back and forth with San Juan's mayor? Yeah, Justin, uh, you know, he tweeted quite a bit about Puerto Rico over the weekend. Uh, and so folks can go to his timeline to read. I, I think I saw a count of, of 15 tweets regarding Puerto Rico, most of them uh, criticizing the leadership there and, and defending what what uh what his administration was doing but on september 30th uh the president tweeted uh the mayor of san juan who was very complimentary only a few days ago has now been told by the democrats that you must be nasty to trump such poor leadership ability by the mayor of san juan and others in puerto rico who are not able to get their workers to help they want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort 10,000 federal workers now on island doing a fantastic job. And he, he proceeded to, to tweet again a mix of uh, uh, trying to share a, a bit about what the military and first responders were doing and then also uh, 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 his, his commentary on, uh, on what local leadership what was doing or, or not doing to his, his satisfaction. And so, uh, you, you know, that, that was a, 
that, that was what we heard from our president this weekend. Yeah, at risk of sounding like a broken record, because I feel like every time uh, our president's name gets brought up on this <laughs> on this podcast, we have to say the same things over and over again. But it's just another ex- example of just a complete lack of character, um, of an understanding of the big picture outside of himself. So you have all these people in Puerto Rico suffering. You have an effort to help them, which was at best delayed. Um, and, and more could have been done, I think, by even the, some of the best accounts, that's the case. And you have a president who can't see past himself to actually comment on this in a way that is productive, that is helpful to the conversation. He cannot get outside of himself. He can throw people under the bus. He can blame the mayor who's in the middle of wading through water to save uh, people from this storm and you know, the hospitals are full and we, you know, we can go on and on about the situation, but we have a president who can't see his way out of that. But the other thing that we see here is also his attitude towards um, people different than himself. Uh, we could say his attitude towards people of color. Again, some of the dog whistles, some of the things he says that almost make you feel like he's saying Puerto Rican people are lazy and why are you waiting for us to do something? Um and and that's why I thought the history of this conversation was important, because what you see is the United States basically controls Puerto Rico. Uh, there's not much too much they, they can do without us. So if you have that type of control, if you're going to maintain this place as a territory, then you should assume some sort of responsibility. Now, most people have. And I think at the end of the day, we have. But that the history is not consistent with Trump's comments. What do you guys think? Right. Well, I you know, I just. Uh, just in Puerto Rico has 43.5% poverty, 43, almost half the country is in, is below the poverty rate. Uh, It's, it's, uh, uh, and in 12 days after the hurricane hit, only five of the country had electricity. And so it's important for folks to understand, uh, uh, again, as you laid out, you know, the, the context of, of what is happening here this this is this is uh a puerto rico got profoundly hit by by this storm uh and we're now two weeks after uh and instead of uh now now trump's gonna gonna go to puerto rico this week um and and, uh we'll, we'll we'll see how how the federal government acts but it uh it it is it is unconscionable that that you would have uh, a a leader cast blame on those who are actually on the ground uh uh w- with with direct responsibility for Puerto Rico um in instead of uh in, instead of actually taking on some of the burden himself and you know it does show the kind of kind of leader he is that he was worried about sort of being blamed for this and and uh, misdirecting blame rather than, you know, some leaders, and I saw President Obama do it. I saw, I, I think we all saw President Bush do it at various times. This is not a Democrat-Republican thing, but but the best leaders, especially in moments of crisis, will take on the responsibility themselves and actually direct some of the, some of the blame and the focus on themselves so that people mo- most immediate to the crisis can focus on their jobs uh, instead of having to be asked about the president's latest tweet. Uh, and so it's, it's just, um, it, it, it's been, it's been very sad, I think for the nation, nation to, 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 to see, to see how their president is acting and to see fellow Americans, uh, uh, be, be suffering in this way. That's right. Help us out, Jamar. What, what do you see in this? Y- y'all brothers named it. I mean, this is leader. This is this is a toxic presidency, if I can say so. Uh, be, I say that because this kind of leadership, which is very poor leadership on so many levels, particularly ethically and morally, it wouldn't be tolerated. In any other institution, whether a, a, a gas station or a, a supermarket or a Fortune 500 company, um, you know, if, if, if you had the leader being this vocal uh, and this offensive and insulting in most venues, he would be gone in a, in a heartbeat. And yet this is the, the, 
the president of the United States now. And so I think it should cause us all to carefully reflect on the power of leadership, particularly when that leadership is bad. And and for Christians, you know, this gets back to what you were saying earlier, Michael, like the, this isn't even a partisan issue. You, you you can't you simply this is not the way you respond to a humanitarian crisis, period. Where's the love? Where's the empathy? Where's the support? Where's the, the focus on other people and not self-centeredness? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This shouldn't even be a question. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very, very sad. And I think it actually harms our our witness as believers when people who name the name of Christ, you know, turn a blind eye or even support uh, what he's saying. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, just just real quickly, um, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that don't really come up in presidential debates. Uh, I'm afraid to say, you know, I don't think many uh, uh, I'm not sure many Americans were thinking when they cast their vote in this election uh, about um, how effective their candidate. Well, you know, whoever the candidate is, uh, it would be at uh, uh, managing. Uh, government response to natural disasters, but th- but this is really the the meat of the job, and it you know there's a yeah. there's a particular statement there, but then there's also a general statement about our politics and how how much of the focus of our political conversation is is so detached from the actual the actual jobs we're electing politicians to do. Uh, Good point. Good point. Yeah, and I think it goes to say this is not to say that there was no. Uh, issues or there's no accountability to go to some of the leadership in Puerto Rico. There may very well be, but in the middle of a disaster, it is unpresidential to be focused on that while people are still suffering. And I think uh, that's where we're all coming from. And it it just needs to be better. And maybe one thing this goes to show us uh, among all the negative things is that there is no amount of power because he has a lot of power. There's no amount of money uh, because he has a lot of money. Uh, that will make you a whole person uh, if you, you know, if you, if you're not focused on God and, and the right things. And I think if nothing else, he is a model of that, that we should be talking about for years to come. Uh, but speaking of this, this, this Trump administration, we know that he uh, just released his uh, tax reform plan. He called it the unified tax reform framework, and he characterized it as a middle-class miracle. Now, I've been saying for so long that Trump is a Christian, and because he called this a miracle, does that prove that he's a Christian? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with no on that. <laughs> I'm going to say it doesn't the prove middle class it. The middle-class doesn't prove it. That's what I was saying. Far from it. Far from it. Uh, but he did have his guy, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen, uh, go- making the rounds, trying to explain what this is about. So I'm going to give you a little idea of what is in this tax plan. Now, it is really just a framework. So it's not even a full plan. And a lot of the questions that Munchen was given, he was like, well, you can't really, really criticize us yet because we haven't given you the full plan. So that was interesting to hear. But that's what he was saying today on uh, all the uh, Sunday morning shows. So some of here's some of the things that the tax framework does. Uh, it simplifies the tax code so people can actually do their own taxes. And, it's, and he was saying that they may be even able to do it on a one page form. Uh, something else is that it lowers the corporate tax rate from 35% to 25%. Uh, it provides uh, for a one-time repatri- repatriation of uh, corporate profits earned overseas. Yeah. Uh, next, it would add several trillion to the na- national deficit. And so you have budget hawks like Re- uh, Republican uh, Senator Bob Corker saying that unless there's some major changes, this is something that he can't support. And now, as we've seen with the healthcare debate, if they don't have every single uh, Republican, this is going nowhere. So that's going to be trouble for them. And something else big that it does is that it also uh, repeals the estate tax, which a lot of Republicans have called the death tax. And so what that is, is that when you die, there's actually an, a tax on your estate before it goes to your heirs. And uh, that has been a, a problem for um, many conservatives for a long time. And so they're trying to get rid of that. As we already know, um, there are no Democrats coming out saying they're supporting this. Um, not even the, uh, all the Republicans are saying that it has support. But I'll tell you this, if they can't get this passed um, in a real way, it's going to be hard to argue that the Republican Party can govern. Uh, as, as we all both we all know, 
uh, you get most of your your strongest legislation through in your first two years. If you go a whole year and you have nothing done, it's going to be problematic. <laughs> I think this also goes goes towards my Paul Ryan theory, which I have talked about over and over again. I really believe Paul Ryan has been <laughs> appeasing Trump in order to get his you know, kind of Ayn Rand style tax plan that he's been, you know, trying to get for for so long. And so he better hope that this is a miracle for the middle class that erases all the damage Trump has done or is, or else is going to prove not to be worth uh, the time and the uh, the compromise. Yeah. You know, there well, a couple things, you know, uh, they're really going to uh, try and put the pressure on some of the Democrats in the Senate up for reelection in 2018. And so President Trump, when uh, in his speech and announcing, you know, the sketch of his of this tax plan. He, he specifically called out Senator Joe Donnelly, who, who I'm a big fan of, but but is up in a in a very tough reelection fight uh, in 2018. I think they'll be looking to to, you know, uh, 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 strong arm Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, maybe even Bob Casey. And I have to say, uh, you know, I don't think this is like health reform um, where uh, you're taking benefits away. I think they're going to have a strong case to make. I, I think if, you know, and it's a big if, but if Trump uh, is able to stay even marginally on message here, if if if, if he's, if he, uh, you I know, if, if, if he's able to, to, um, to to use the bully pulpit, which you know, bully pulpit is you know especially effective when talking about this president. Uh, um, uh, I, I think it. I think they might have some headway. I mean, uh, the standard deduction going up. There are some good. Uh, there are some good pieces in here about raising the child tax credit. Uh, that they, they're introducing a new tax credit for uh, uh, for uh, those with. Uh, 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 dependents that are not children. So, for instance, if you're uh, if you're taking care of uh, a family member who's ailing, um, and and the thing about a tax cut plan is that the hurt only comes after when you have to make the budget cuts on the back end to make up for all the money you're well, you're, <laughs> and and that's where the uh, th that's where the rubber will meet the road. But unfortunately, they could they could pass this tax plan without having to without having to balance the budget. Uh, to, to make up for the cut. But here's the problem. As you said, therein lies the problem. Bob Corker just said he's not running again. And right. I believe Bob Corker said he's not running again so he can do the right thing on issues like this. Hmm. Their problem is going to be the deficit hawks. When they did not get that health care. See, in my, the way I looked at it, and we talked about this before, health care was a way of them getting to this tax plan because they needed the cuts in healthcare to make sure that this didn't just blow up the deficit. Right, right, when right. they didn't pass healthcare and now they have to go straight to the tax reform, it's making, it's making that deficit even bigger. And that's why Bob Corker, the day it came out, he's saying, hold up. If this is a, if, if this is a, uh, going to grow the deficit, I'm not in. And so I think that's their biggest problem. Had they had another way to make those cuts before and it wasn't clear that this is going to be crazy on the deficit, then maybe it would have been a little bit easier because this isn't all bad. And tax reform policy uh, with some of the things they're doing, I think, could be more palatable to more people. They're not going to get any Democrat votes, but I think they could have pulled people in. If they can't fix that deficit problem before they pass it, I think it's going to be tough, uh, but probably a better chance, to your point, than, than uh, health reform. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so so this week coming up, they have to pass that uh, they're going to be working on uh, on on a budget. Uh, the budget is going to, uh, it, you know, assuming it passes, which it should, because they're uh, they're actually moving forward with a budget plan that is uh, uh, not as drastic in terms of cutting the social safety net as as some of the uh the freedom members in the house would want and so they'll they'll probably be able to move this budget through and one of the reasons why they're going to be able to move it through is because it, it the 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 budget that they pass will include orders for uh the the drafting committees on taxes um to deliver actual legislation uh reflecting Trump's principles uh uh in November uh and so uh 
And so just like, you know, healthcare was a gateway to taxes. Now it's the, uh, you know, the budget's kind of a gateway to taxes too. Uh, conservative members are willing to vote for a budget that isn't as drastic as they would like in terms of its cuts, uh, because this, 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 these tax cuts, which they've talked about, They've talked about since Newt Gingrich in the 90s. Newt Gingrich was always talking about uh, you should be able to do your, your taxes on, on a form no bigger than the size of an index card. Uh, and, and they're, they're, they're going right. to have their right. shot. And, and like, if, if, if they don't get this done, uh, you, you know, which is why Corker not running for re-election is, is so, so critical and why he's going to be able to – uh, it's why he's going to be able to oppose it. But a lot of the guys that are staying in – uh, they're not going to have anything else to take to their voters unless they get this tax tax thing through. So, yeah, yeah I think it's a long yeah, shot. It's a long shot, but, but it's it's, it's, yeah, it's better than health care. It's, it's a lot. Don't forget about McCain either, yeah. right? McCain doesn't have to go along with this. And I think he has a constituency that appreciates him. And for all that's going on, you know, in his life, uh, we're praying for him. But he doesn't have to go along with this either. You got a guy like... um um Rand Paul you know he doesn't necessarily have to have these conversations so we're uh we, we're gonna see what happens it's gonna be interesting but to your point there is an incentive to get something done right uh and so that 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 says something they know as a party right if, if they're gonna be uh, a partisan they're gonna say as a party we have to get something done and so there is incentive there let me ask you this though let me ask you both this do you think, and just generally, so the largest two tax cuts that have, have happened, I believe one that we always hear about is Reagan. And then actually people don't know, but Kennedy uh, had a pretty big tax cut too. Do you see some of these tax cuts with all this going on? Do you see this as compassionate policy? I mean, it, it's hard not to oversimplify tax <laughs> tax policy, right? But what are some considerations that we should think of as we are cutting taxes? Because they do, as we said before, have consequences and serious implications. Well, this is why I like listening to you both so much, because you're able to delve more deeply into the policy side and the actual uh, legislation than many citizens. And so I, I think as believers, we should we should be attuned to folks like you and, and others who are able to do this, because I think we get into a lot of trouble when we just vote sort of straight party line on anything. Uh, with, without really considering the ramifications of the policy. And I'll go one step further is that, you know, I'm not a politico, but I try to be an informed, engaged citizen. And and when I'm doing that, one thing I, I try always to do is listen to the people who would be most adversely affected by any policy and see what they're saying. And so when it comes to taxes, you 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 got to go to the poor. You've got to look at the the folks with the lowest income, the people who have the least uh, sort of um, agency financially, and say, well, how does this work or not work for them? And it helps to listen to vo voices on both sides of the aisle. And so for me, if it's not helping the poor, it's you can make a good argument that it's not compassionate. Um, which again is not dictating how anyone should vote, but as Christians, they really shouldn't be able to peg us politically. They shouldn't be able to say, oh, all Christians are Democrat or all Christians are Republican. They should have to say, well, I'm not sure. It depends on the issue. And so this would be one of those instances where it's not primarily a, or a, a partisan consideration or, or calculus we should be making. Uh, as believers, we've got to look at what is loving and what is compassionate, particularly for those who are not in the same advantageous position that we might be. Justin, I, I don't think there's there's any biblical sort of mandate, at, you know, for for what at what rate capital gains should be taxed, you know, like so, you know, <laughs> these conversations are in some ways a more difficult. You know, I, I, I do get concerned when. Uh, and again, we don't have the full plan. So, so some of this, uh, uh, again, CBO hasn't scored it. Even some of the think tanks haven't, haven't, uh, they, they put out initial reports. Uh, so, you know, the more progressive think tanks have said that, uh, that the Trump tax plan would, would heavily favor the rich. Some have even said that it, it seems specifically, uh, designed to benefit, uh, people in, in his rarefied, 
tax bracket. So, um, you know, I think it's important to look at, you know, where the priority is. And again, you know, I think making taxes more simple is helpful. I think we should be concerned if uh, taxes are so complicated that that people that don't have the luxury of having accountants and and having uh you, you know the financial literacy to take advantage of every loophole they can they can find i mean that that's a that's an issue of compassion i also get concerned when i look at a, a tax plan that um you know almost cuts corporate taxes in half uh that again gets rid of the estate tax um in a way that uh, allows for uh you know this generational uh, uh wealth uh that that um that that really doesn't take into account the common good uh, so i have concerns there but uh you, you know th this is uh, from a political dimension um i i hope and and we've seen early statements from chuck schumer and others that have uh that have pointed to this if if Republicans are able to have this tax plan conversation isolated from the budget and our our national obligations, they may win this fight. What I think we'll stay attuned to, what I think Democrats are going to try and keep pointing to, is the fact that uh, uh, taxes determine what the government's revenue is. <laughs> and if, if the government's getting a lot less revenue, then... Uh, then for the same reason that you didn't want Obamacare being repealed, for the same reason that uh, uh, that uh, you, you want the government to be able to uh, respond to natural disasters in Texas, in Florida, in Puerto Rico, um, the, the taxes are connected to that. But it's it's going to be a it's going to be a political political dogfight that, as Jamar said, has to remain rooted in how it will impact individual lives, particularly uh, the, the the poor and the vulnerable. And uh, and that's a role that Christians can play as this uh, this debate plays out, which which will happen, you know, over the course of months, not weeks. This is this is going to be a defining, defining fight, you know, running up uh, uh, into into, you know, midterms into early 2018. Yeah. And, and and something else to think about, I think there's an ethical component to deficits, too, and debt. Right. Uh, not, not not getting more than you can pay for. So I don't I don't want to leave that out because you do have some um, some commentators and economists on the left that say, well, the deficit doesn't matter at all. Right. Uh, it, it's not going to it's going gonna, it's gonna to be OK. We'll get through it or whatever. But I think you do have to take that in. Uh, I think you have to take that into consideration. And we have to make sure that Democrats as well are coming up with good plans, even if you don't necessarily plans to support this. There needs to be a constructive conversation to where you are putting out uh, policy prescriptions that could be helpful because you never know one of those can get uh, picked up. So I know me and, and, and Michael will be playing, paying close attention to this uh, framework as it grows and as they flesh out what's going to happen. And I not everybody's going to get a chance to read this, but I can tell you, Michael Weir and myself are going to read it ourselves. One thing I have found and I've said over and over on this show, when it comes to policy, Either read it for yourself or make sure you have somebody who you really trust read it. I can't tell you how many times from the right and the left, they've said what was in a policy and then I read it and it completely was not there. <laughs> and it made me look at politics a lot differently because people do spin things. So we'll stay close to it. We'll be willing to interpret it for those who just don't have the time or just don't have the understanding to do so. That's what we're here for. Um, and so this was a great conversation, guys. We are going to have to have uh jamar on again Please. brother i appreciate all that you're doing um we're with you i think you have stated your case very well and whether you're uh whether you change who your primary audience is or not uh white evangelicals are going to be listening to you because you 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 stood there and you're still speaking uh in a way that they've got to hear it even the ones that don't uh want to <laughs> man so we appreciate your witness we appreciate uh, what you're doing and thanks for coming well, on likewise brother. this is uh not only an informative show it's a fun one as well so i wish y'all the best and many blessings as as you wade through these very difficult important and timely topics thank you so much for having me thanks jamar appreciate you I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove, tell me.
Napa Auto Parts, you can get $25 or more off brand new DeWalt power tools by trading in your old ones. You know those worthless tools you never use anymore? Yeah, those dusty things can actually save you at least $25 on new DeWalt power tools. Hmm, not so worthless after all. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Offer ends 6 Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts, you can get $25 or more off brand new DeWalt power tools by trading in your old ones. You know, those worthless tools you never use anymore? Yeah, those dusty things can actually save you at least $25 on new DeWalt power tools. Hmm, not so worthless after all. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Offer ends 6 30 19.